to thank you, Father, for every moment that we live. We recognize that every breath we breathe, every beat of our heart is a gift from you. We thank you, Father, for the ability and the resources to make physical improvements, Lord. But they're just tools, they're just means so that we can come here and do what is really important. And that's to worship you, to love you, to serve you, and to learn from you. And so, Father, as we prepare to do that now, we thank you for the time of worship that we've had. We thank you for the time that we have now, Father, to open your word and allow you to speak to us. And, Father, we thank you that we serve a God. We have a Father who speaks to us, who corrects us, who encourages us, who challenges us, who loves us beyond everything else. And so, Father, as we open your word together, we ask you by the power and anointing of your spirit that you take this living word and breathe breathe on it off the pages of this Bible and breathe it into our souls and into our spirits that we may leave here, Father, with an encounter with you. And we thank you for that in advance. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Well, if you've joined us this morning for by way of television, obviously you'll see some differences up here. We are in the process of making some changes, some physical changes that have long been overdue. We are building a lower stage here, which you can see is in progress, and there will be further changes we're going to be making over the next really few months. So that as you look at the changes and you realize that we are under construction, but we're all under construction, aren't we? Praise God. I want to get a sign and have it put up here under construction, and I'm going to get a T-shirt for me. I'm still under construction. Are you under construction? Praise God. Okay. Well, it's the Word of God. The Bible says it's the Word of God that causes us to grow. Peter says it's the milk of the Word, the sincere milk of the Word by which we grow and mature. So God doesn't use hammers and nails on us, but He uses the Word of God and the Spirit of God. So open your Bibles with me to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. Excuse me, 3. And we really, for some time now, have been laying a foundation. I've shared with you before uh, that for whatever reason, and I believe that I understand some of the reason, that when I was practicing law, God put me in offices that were across the street from a, a building site. I was in an office in Boston back in the 70s. Uh, where they were building what's 100 Federal Street now. I'm not sure it's even there. It was Bank of America, Bank of Boston. It was a number of other banks that were taken over. And I watched them begin with the foundation and spend months and months and months pouring that foundation and building the reinforcement girders into that foundation. Then when we lived out in Tulsa, I was in an office that was directly across the street uh, from, or down the street from a building that was being built uh, over the top of an 11-story building. They were building this 60-story building, which actually ended up as 40 stories, in the back of the of an 11-story building, and then when they got up to the 12-story, they were going to cantilever it out and go up the rest of those stories. And I noticed in each of these building sites and others that I've seen that they spent months, 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 and months preparing the foundation. In fact, the building that was going to be cantilevered out over the one in Tulsa, they literally went down four stories into the ground. And I wonder, why did they do that until I discovered they were going to build this building that was going to lean out over another building, and if I guess I'm going to be on that office on the 40th floor that's leaning out, I want to make sure that there's a solid foundation. And indeed, what I found they did is the bottom two stories of the foundation were blocks of cement into which they built these girders that were going to balance off that building. And the point is this. They spent more time on the foundation than they did on the steel structure because the contractors and the architects understand something that the strength of the foundation 
and the design of the foundation determines what you can build on top of it. And God works that same principle. In fact, that principle comes from God. God wants to work in your life and my life a foundation, a foundation on which he can build whatever he wants to build in our life. And we determine what kind of story, what kind of building God can build on that foundation in our lives. And God is a master architect. God is a master designer. God is a master engineer. He knows how to do that in us if we'll just cooperate with us. So you've gone through experiences in your life. You've gone through things that you may not have understood, never understood. Why did I go through that and did not realize that God wanted to build in you character? See, the things that matter to God, the things that allow God to do things through you are not the outward things. That's not the steel structure. It's the character that he can build in you. Talent, God can just give you. But many people have talent to get themselves somewhere, but they don't have the character to sustain it. They don't have the integrity. They don't have the value system. They have adopted the value systems of the world. And so what God wants to do in their lives, and the Bible's full of examples of that. Samson's a great example. He was one of the judges of Israel during the period of the judges. And God used Samson to do mighty miracles. I mean, he killed a thousand Philistines with a donkey's jawbone. And it wasn't because he was, you know, Atlas, you know, that he worked out all the time. And I'm sure he didn't, wasn't puny. But they couldn't figure out where his strength came from. So there must have been nothing unusual about the way he appeared but it was the anointing of God, that it was the Spirit of God that would come upon him to do great and mighty things. And so he had the gifting of God, he had the anointing of God, but he never developed the character. And in that weakness that God would, he would not allow God to strengthen was his downfall. And so God was not able... Israel's an example of that. We've been looking at Israel. I share that with you because I believe God's been building... That's not just true of us as individuals. It's true of a church. There's a foundation to churches, and the Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 that that foundation has to be Christ. If Christ is not the foundation of a church, then it does not have a foundation in God's eyes that will stand. It will not stand. And it's not just founded on believing in Christ, it's founded on who he is and what he wants done. Every church that God has established, and there are churches out there, I don't, I'm not sure whether God's established them or not. That's not my call. But when God establishes a church, it's because he has a purpose for that church. When God births you, gives life into you, it's because he has a purpose for your life. And so we've been spending really the last few months of this year and the end of last year, whether you realize that or not, laying a foundation for something. And now it's time to begin to look at what that is. So we were looking over the last few weeks. I was not here last weekend, and uh, um, the weekend before was Resurrection Sunday, and before that was, was Lafayette was here. So it's been a while since we've been able to look at this. But we've been looking in these scriptures in Ephesians chapter 3. And I want to begin there, and then we're going to go to what was this all really about. Philippians, what did I tell you? Yeah, no, Philippians. Philippians chapter 3, and I'm in, still in chapter 2. Okay, verse 12. And we've talked about this. Paul's talking about here about his purpose for his life, which in verse 10 says to know him, Christ, and to the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering. Now verse 12. Not that I've already attained it or I'm already perfected, but I press on. I press on. You understand life is a pressing on. Have you found that out by now? 
once you get saved, it doesn't just, you know, the doors of life don't just open up to you. And it's like getting on a nice, you know, uh, a nice sliding board that goes right down into the warm water, you know. No, it's like everything begins to go uphill. You have to press through things. And we showed, used the example a few weeks ago of what it's like if to, to, when you're, before you're saved, when you're just part of the world, the world is flowing in a direction. You can use it a stream or a, like a river. And Jesus calls it a way, actually, in the Sermon on the Mount. Flow in that river, and when you get... But it's all flowing in a direction, and that direction is destruction. And when you're saved, we turn around. That's what the word repent means. We turn around, and now we're still in that river, but we're going in the opposite direction, so that means we have to press. We have to press, which means you can't let down your guard. And you may slip one day, but you've got to get back up the next day. In other words, it requires effort on our, our, our part. It requires persistence and dedication, which is not a word you hear very often any day, nowadays. It requires some discipline, which is a, not a word you hear very often and is not a very popular word. Because I can tell because you're not jumping up and down and screaming and saying, praise God, I, you know. But, I, but this is where it requires a pressing. Paul says, and it, that's an act of your will. That you've got, you know, I've gone to bed some nights this week. Just, I mean, I was reading scriptures in bed and just, wow, I could hardly go to sleep. I was so excited. You know, and I wake up the next morning and I wonder whether I'm saved by the way I feel. Oh, yeah. You ever do that? Yeah. Why? Because during the night, sensations in my body, thoughts, dreams, all kinds of things. But you, that's why I can't go by yesterday's victories. I can't go by how I felt yesterday. I've got to get up in the morning and set, I set myself in the morning. I set myself as to who I am in Christ. I set my mind mentally on some things. I speak some things over my life. I speak some things to God. My wife and I have a routine of what we do together. And we do to set myself for that day and establish myself so that during the day as I'm going through issues, maybe battling some things, maybe having to press through some things, the Spirit of God can bring that commitment back to me. It says, this is how you set yourself today. This is how you set yourself today. So the point the Apostle Paul is making here is, I press. This is Paul with all his knowledge, with the revelations of Christ. Christ appeared to him. And the gospel that he's given to us, Christ personally gave to him. But notice Paul's not running on that experience. The emotion and the enthusiasm and the, and the, the, the momentum of that experience doesn't carry him. He has to get up every day and choose to press and we have an adversary out there that's pressing against us. And so we must press. I press. Not that I've already attained it or I'm already perfect, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus laid hold of me. Brother, I don't count myself of apprehending it or accomplishing it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward those things that are ahead, I press, there it is again, I press towards the goal of the prize of the upward call of God that's in Christ Jesus. So Paul, and we've talked about this before, Paul had a goal in mind. He had a prize that was awaiting him. And we looked over in 1 Corinthians 9, around verses 24, 25, 26, and 27. And we saw what Paul compared it to the prize that the, the, Olympian, the, the ancient Greek Olympians stro- trained for and strove for. And he said the, that that prize that they had was just a laurel wreath. And only one of them could win. He says, but we're pressing on. We're seeking a prize that all of us can win. And it's an eternal prize with an eternal reward. 
And there's some days I go through, I'm sure you go through some days like this where you just, you know, it's so tempting to say, I don't know if I can do this. You know, you get the pressures against you of life, maybe family issues, maybe it's your health issues, and you get discouraged. You just want to, you know, chuck it all in. But what motivates me in those times is I'm pressing towards a goal. And that goal is I'm going to stand before my Lord someday and I'm going to give an account and I'm going to, how I conducted myself here. And whether I finish my court, it's faithfulness that he requires. It's faithfulness he requires. Well done, good and faithful servant. Faithfulness he requires. And my whole goal, the reason I go through things I'll go through and stand against, sometimes it feels everything may be standing against me, is because I want to hear those words from him. Well done good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your Lord. There's a reward that's awaiting you for finishing your course, for accomplishing, and God gives you the ability to do it, what God's given you to do, not what God's given somebody else to do, what God's given you to do. And the same is true of a church, and the same is true of this church. We're not in competition with a church across town. We're not in competition with some church on television. They each have their own assignment and their own responsibility and their own accounting for the role God had for them to do. But he says, I lay hold of, go back to verse 12. Not that I've already attained it or am already perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus also laid hold of me. So what we saw is that for each one of us, when God planned for your life, because Ephesians 1, as well as some other verses, tell us that God preordained you before the foundation of the world. Psalm 139 tells you that God planned for you, watched you being formed in your mother's womb, and all the thoughts that God has towards you and the plans that God has towards you. Jeremiah 29 talks about the plans that God has for you, for good and not for evil, and for an expected end. God has plans for your life, purposes for your life. And Paul says, it became my determined purpose to lay hold of that for which Christ laid hold of me. And what we saw was that's not only true of us as persons and individuals, it's also true of a church. So what we're going to begin to look at is to answer this question, why are we here? Why are we here? You know, that's the question of the ages. That's what the gurus sit on the mountains and contemplate their navel over. You know, what's the purpose of life? What's the meaning of life? You realize we're the only creature God made that can contemplate that. We've had dogs. When I was growing up, we had dogs. In fact, the house I lived in had some weird animals in it. My mother just collected animals. And we had a raccoon living in our house for a while. We had, my mother had a skunk, descended, living in our house. At one point, there was an armadillo living there. She just had him in the house. She loved to collect. She had, what she had as a friend that had exotic animal store. And when she, the friend couldn't find anybody else to take it, she called my mother up. And my mother was... Have it. We had snakes. We had all kinds of things living around. Not all at the same time. Why was I on that? I was thinking about that. Oh, yes, 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 yes. With all these animals, I never yet noticed any... The dog, the cats. We had tons of cats. I never noticed the, the raccoon. I never noticed the fish. I never noticed the snakes sitting together talking about, why are we here? What's the meaning of life in this household? No, man's the only creature that God created, that has the ability to contemplate and evaluate and decide what is my purpose for being here? What is our purpose for being here? And you understand, and I don't want to get letters from Peter and all the rest of them, 
But if you read the Bible, animals are here for our benefit, not the other way around. The animals were created for man's benefit, not man for the benefit of animals, at least according to the Creator, that's the way it is. But this question, why are we here? What's the meaning of life? is really at the foundation of so many things. We may not spend a lot of time during our week thinking about it, but it's underneath there somewhere. What's the purpose of life? Most of us, unless we think about this, most of us, unless we're challenged about this, we're so busy with living life that we don't think about it very often. And so we go from one, our goal is to get through today so that we can get to tomorrow. And then we get to tomorrow, and that goal is to get through tomorrow so we can get to Tuesday. And then the goal for Tuesday is to get through Tuesday so I can get to Wednesday. And by the end of the week, we come, it's the end of my work week. It's the end of your work week. It's the beginning of mine. The end of, get, it's the weekend. And the weekend goes like that, and now we start it all over again. We're living our life one day at a time just to get through one day without any question of why. What am I doing? And we come to the end, and, and, and people hit it at different times of life. I hit it when I turned 50. It's called a midlife crisis. And what it suddenly is is that you dawns on you, wait a minute, I'm looking back over 50 years, and most likely I don't have another 50 years. I may, but it's not likely I have another 50 years. And at that point in time, it was about the time I lost my father, and other things began to come to me to realize that I'm... I'm mortal. And you're growing up when you're young, although you intellectually know you're mortal, your attitude is not. And that's why teenagers do crazy things because they don't think I can ever die. Because I've, I know I'm full of life. Everything's in front of me. But you understand, we're not guaranteed the next moment. There's no guarantees to how long we're going to live. The Bible says it's appointed you know, for 70 years and then for some cases more than that. But that's not a guarantee attached to that. And so... But you get a point if you get through those eight, those years where there's a point where you begin to look at your life and realize, wait a minute, I'm not going to be here forever. It may be that you've had people around you, family members or people you've grown up with, or look around and you realize some of them aren't here anymore. They've gone on. And we become aware of our mortality, and that begins to shake us, realizing, well, wait a minute, that means I can project forward. This is not going to last forever and the question is, what do you do? What do you do at that point? The tendency is to kind of file that away and get back busy with life again. Because the busier we are with life, the less we have to think about it. And those are things we don't like to think about it because we either don't have the answer or we don't like the answer. And so we come back to the question. This is the question we like to avoid. Why are we here? What we're really talking about is what is the meaning of life? And see, if you go through life one day at a time, just living one day at a time to survive, to get through, then there's no meaning to your life. Your meaning is survival. This is something we need to ask ourselves periodically as individuals. Why am I living my life? I don't mean what do I believe in my head is the purpose of my life. Why am I actually doing it? Why am I actually doing it? By the way, there's some places where you can find that out. Don't just trust your own judgment because we'll tend to give ourselves the benefit of the doubt. But one of the ways to find out what your life is about is to look in your checkbook and see where you've spent your money. Another place to look is at your calendar, if people keep calendars anymore, and see where you spend your time. 
Because where you spend your time and where you spend your money is where you put your, you're investing your life. And where you're investing your life in is where you believe your purpose comes from it. And so we can think we're one place, but in reality be somewhere else. And this is challenging to look at. It's challenging for me to go and evaluate this. But we must do that because there's going to come a day when this all ends and we're going to get an accounting of it from somebody who tells the truth, who is the truth, and there's no, well, I thought I did this and I meant to do this. I've been praying, God, open my eyes because I want to see what I'm going to see then now when I can make changes and do something about it. And again, that's not just true of us as individuals. It's true as a church. And a year or so ago, I began to pray in here, God, open my eyes. I've been here in this position at that point about five years, now a little over six years. I've been here for 20-some years, but I've been the senior pastor for that long. And Lord, we had to come through some difficult times and some challenges, and, and, and by God's grace, we've come through that, and now we're here. Why? Why are we here, Lord? Are we fulfilling your purpose? Are we accomplishing not just accomplishing, is our purpose to accomplish what you've chosen us to do. In other words, are we laying a hold of what you laid hold of Faith Christian Center for? Why you sent a crusty old Texan and his wonderful wife dragging his heels, not hers, up here some 35 years ago, 36 years ago now, to establish this church that's come through all kinds of things. Why did you do that? Because in the process of those 36 years, other churches have come and go, gone. Not all, but some have come and gone. Why are we here? When you discover the meaning of your life, it gives you purpose. When you discover the meaning of your life, it gives you a reason when you get up every day, not just to survive, but to, for why you do what you do. It gives you a reason to make decisions, just as those athletes who have set a goal to win the gold medal to, 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 to win the gold medal in the 100-yard dash or 100-meter dash or whatever it is in the next Olympics. When they get up at 4 o'clock in the morning to go out to that track, when that ice skater gets up at 4 o'clock in the morning, when everybody else is in bed under the nice warm electric blankets and they're out there at 4 or 5 o'clock in the morning strapping those long skates on and practicing doing things that nobody else sees and the reason they do that, things that nobody else does, the reason they put themselves and discipline themselves is because they have a goal in in front of them. They know why they're here. They know why they're doing what they're doing. It causes them to choose not to eat certain things and to eat other things that people that they may not want to eat, but they know it's going to condition their body. It means their body now has a purpose for them, other than just, you know, the thing to carry around with them. But it's the very thing that's going to be used to win that gold medal. It gives meaning to our life. It helps us to make decisions. I believe this is one of the reasons that in this generation Suicide among teenagers is so high. Why? Well, it's the purpose of life. If, if there's no reason to live, then in their mind, because the devil lies to them, death must be better than this, because all I know is I'm getting bullied at school. Um, you know, I got acne all over my face. I don't have any future, any hope. My family's in trouble. I don't have any reason to live. And the, so in that, in that setting, the devil's lie can come to them that death is going to be better than trying to live because there's no purpose given to their lives. But you instill in children a purpose. You instill that God has a purpose for your life. Whether they may wander a little bit, that seed's down in them, that foundation's down in them. There's a purpose for their life. Well, there's a purpose for your life also. And there's a purpose for this church. And I believe that your being here is part of God's purpose for your life 
to help fulfill God's purpose for this church. Because this church is not these four walls. It's not this carpet. It's not this new stage. It's not the things we're going to put in here. The, per- the church is you and me. It's the body of Christ together. And this is just a tool we use so that we can meet and serve him. Isaiah 29. Let's just look there quickly. Because we're talking about why are we here? Why are we on this earth? Why is Faith Christian Center here? Why am I at Faith Christian Center? Isaiah 29. What's all this about? Well, how do we decide that? How do we find out why we're here? Do we go online? Google it? That'd be interesting to do. Somebody will probably do it before I'm finished talking. It's an amazing thing about these devices. I was at a church we visited with one of our sons in Nashville. We were just out last weekend because our two sons live in Nashville, and it was their birthday, and we hadn't been with them for 10 years on their birthday. So we went out there just for the weekend, and we went to one of their churches with them, and you know the, t- the, the pastor's up there talking about something in church history, and he branches it. And I'm on my phone look, checking him out <laughs> just to see if he's right. Well, this is crazy. I need to listen to what he has to say. So, So... Why are we here? How do we find that out? Do we Google it? Where do we go to find it out? Who decides why we're here? Well, you and I live in a world that teaches that we each have the right to do that for ourselves. I'm the master of my soul. I'm the captain of my ship. This is my body. I have the right to do with my body what I want to do with it. And nobody has the right to tell me what to do with my life. Nobody has the right to tell me to do with my life, with my, with my body or my life or my time. Who are you to tell me what to do? Well, I'm nobody. But let's look at Isaiah 29 because Isaiah was a prophet speaking on behalf of God to a people who had that same attitude. Verse 15. Well, let's go back to verse 13. Therefore the Lord said, Inasmuch as these people draw near to me with their mouths and honor me with their lips. So he's talking about church people. But they've removed their hearts far from me, and their fear towards me is taught by commandment of men or by rote. Therefore, behold, I will again do a marvelous work among them. Now go down to verse 15. Woe to those who seek, to, who seek deep to hide their counsel far from the Lord, and their works are in the dark. They say, Who sees us and who knows? Surely you have things turned around. In other words, surely you're thinking about this wrong. Shall the potter be esteemed or valued the same as the clay? Shall the thing that's made say of him who made it, he did not make me? Or shall the thing formed say of him who formed it, he has no understanding? Often God uses in the prophets in the Old Testament... Ezekiel refers to this. Isaiah refers to it several places. It's in the Psalms. God refers to himself as the potter and Israel, or in our case, us, as the clay. In fact, in in, uh, Isaiah later on, he says, uh, excuse me, in in Jeremiah, he says, he says, told the prophet to go down to the potter's shed and watch the potter. He said, just stand there and observe him. And what, I, what Jeremiah saw was a potter. And you know what a pot, pottery wheel is. It's the thing that they, in their cases, it wasn't electric. They used their foot and it would cause the, 
the, the table to turn, and they would take a lump of clay and they would moisten it with water, with oil, and they'd wet their hands, and as this thing was turning, they would begin to mold it and shape it into whatever form that they want, and people still do that today. It's a craft that people do today. And, but this was his livelihood, and he told Jeremiah to go down and watch this. And what Jeremiah saw is somewhere in the process there was a defect in the clay. And so what the potter did is he took the clay and he smashed it all down again and started over again to remake it. And God spoke to him and says, that's Israel. And the message is this. God often uses the image of a potter and clay to communicate who he is and who we are. And here he's saying through Isaiah... He says, shall the clay consider itself the same as the potter? In other words, does the clay have the right to decide what it's going to be made into? We're talking about why we're here, who made us, what what our purpose of our life is, and the question is who gets to decide that? And what what, what John's saying to the prophets is the potter decides what he's going to make the clay into. The clay doesn't have a vote on whether it's going to be a vase or a tray, or a glass, or a cup. It has no vote on that. It just, all it can do is submit to the potter's hands and allow him to mold the clay. And elsewhere, in fact, Jeremiah is talking about clay that's hard and brittle, that's not moldable. And all God could do is smash it down and soften it and work it over again. And sometimes in our lives, we just get stiff-necked. And we say, I want to do what I want to do. And what we become is hard clay in the potter's hands. That's because we forget that he's the potter and we're the clay. And the message here that the prophet is giving is the clay does not have the right to decide what it's going to be made into. Its purpose comes from the potter's will. And this was not just a lesson in pottery. This was a lesson of communicating to Israel And from this we can learn. Our purpose comes from God. In fact, if it doesn't come from God, you've made it up. But when it comes from God, there's a life flow, there's an anointing, there's a power when you step into the place of determining that I am here to carry out God's will. One of the beloved Psalms is Psalm 91. It's full of protection and promise of provision. Though a thousand may fall at my right and ten thousand at my left hand, it's not going to come near me. No plague shall come near my dwelling. Wow. You understand cancer is a plague? One of the great fears of the day is that C word, cancer. It's a plague. And Psalm 91 promises that no plague shall come near this dwelling, this dwelling. Other amazing promises of protection and provision in there. Say, how come we're not experiencing that? Because we forget the condition in the beginning. He who dwells, not visits, not on Sunday morning and Wednesday night. He who dwells in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. Where is that secret place? Well, the fact that it's secret means it's not obvious to everybody. The fact that it's secret means I have to press to find it. And I believe that secret place is right up underneath God's will. 
It's right in His hands. And I cannot be stiff-necked and say, I've got my life to live and want to do what I want to do and be in the secret place of the Most High. doesn't mean God doesn't love us. doesn't mean God won't do what He can do in our life. But we don't let Him because we're not clay, soft clay in the potter's hand. So as an individual, I've got to come to Him and continue to, to, to open my heart to Him where my will resides and be willing to allow Him to work on my will. One of the comforting verses is later on here. It says, for God is at work. Well, let's go on, read down. Well, go, let's go back to uh, Philippians. Verse 14, 3.14, I press on towards the goal, there it is again, of the prize of the upper call of God in Christ Jesus. Verse 15, therefore let us, as many as are mature, have this mind. And if anything you think otherwise, God will reveal this to you. So Paul is saying that as many of you as are mature, this should be the mind that you have, that you're pressing on towards his goal for your life. And isn't that true of natural children? When they're small, when they're little boys and little girls, they're living their life for themselves. And clearly an infant and a baby, all they care about is eating and being dry and clean and being held. But as they begin to grow and they become toddlers, the mark of a toddler is me, my, mine. That's mine, whether it was or not. I want it. Everything's centered around what I want. If I'm not happy, I cry. If I don't get my way, I stop my feet and pout my lips. I hopefully you don't let your children do that. But life is all around me. When Lafayette Scales was here, he quoted, or he referred to a, a book called, uh, 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 is it Broken Maturity or Artificial Maturity? And he talks about lessons that a child needs to learn at a very young age. That I'm loved, that I have value, that I'm safe, I have purpose. He says, but then when they get to an older age, they've got to learn some other lessons. Everything's not about me. Life is hard. And what happens is when a child gets one and not the other, then they're spoiled. When they get the hard life and nothing's, but without, the, without the foundation, then they're fearful. And it, it's the right teaching at the right order built into them. And so Paul's talking here to us as Christians, and the Bible talks to us about the process of maturing as children of God. So when we're first born again, everything's about me. I like this first, I like this song, I like this. But as we grow and mature, we've got to begin to realize that, that, that we've been called here not about us, but it's about him. We sang that, Jesus be the center of my life. But the story, the example that Jesus gave to his disciples, and I'm kind of getting ahead of myself here, but let's go with it anyway. Jesus, the example Jesus gave to his disciples in John 15, he says, I am the vine and you're the branches. Now, vines are kind of hard for us to picture because our idea of a vine is that thing growing up the side of my house that shouldn't be there, that's you know, about that big around. But a vine in Israel was like a tree. And so let's use the example of a tree instead. I am the tree, and you are the branches. Ever think about it? A branch has no identity of its own. 
You don't look at the branch. I don't look at the branch on the, on the oak tree in our front yard and say, there's Harry, there's Fred. I don't have names for those branches. They're whatever they are because they're in the oak tree. So a branch has no identity of its own. Its identity, it has an identity, but it's not an independent identity. Its identity is it belongs to that oak tree. It's come out of that oak tree. A branch has no purpose of its own. It has no independent purpose. It doesn't exist for itself. It exists solely for the tree so that the tree can produce its fruit through the branch. It has no will of its own. I've never yet heard the trees in our front yard saying, I don't want to produce fruit this year. By virtue of being in the tree, the tree does through the branch what it wants to do. It has no life of its own. Right now, we've got to get some cleanup done because we have a few branches that over this winter, over the few weeks, last few weeks, have broken off of the tree and have fallen on the ground. And guess what? They're not producing anything. They're going to have to be taken up and thrown out and burned. Jesus said to his disciples at the very end of his ministry with them, preparing them for what was to come, preparing them for turning this over to them, he said, you need to understand why you're here. You've come through my training process. You've learned wonderful things. I've trained you. I've sent you out. You prayed for the sick and seen them healed. You've, you've cast demons out and see them come out. You've experienced the authority that I've given to you. But now you need to understand why I chose you. Because he says in John 15, you didn't choose me. I chose you. And he doesn't stop there. He says, I chose you so that you bear, may, bear much, may bear much fruit and that your fruit should remain. But before that, he tells them his relation to them is like a tree to a branch. It would be interesting if I tried to take those branches that are now in our yard and go and said, you know what, I'd like another elm tree. So I'm going to take this branch, dig a little hole, turn the branch up this way, and shove it down in the ground, put the ground around it, and start watering the branch to see if I can get a new tree out of that branch. Not going to happen, is it? Why? Because a branch can't produce life of its own. But when we go to discern, this is my life. I want to do with my life what I want to do. We're a branch that we break off of the tree, stick into the ground, and we fool ourselves to think we're going to bear fruit. There is no spiritual fruit. There is no spiritual life apart from Christ. Because Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. So in the Old Testament, God uses the potter and the clay as an example of his relationship to Israel. You're, just, you're clay in my hands, but, but he's a master potter. He can make the most beautiful vessels if they would have allowed him to do that. In the New Testament, Jesus uses the example of the tree or the vine and the branches. And he says, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, you'll ask what you wish and it will be done for you. No conditions. Wow. Wouldn't you love to whatever prayer you say, whatever you say, comes to pass like that? Wow. And Jesus says, the condition is your life has to be abiding in me. It has to be given over to me so its only purpose is for me to bear fruit through it. But that takes the pressure off of us. 
Because most of us, because we're good people and because we love the Lord, we're out there trying to bear fruit. I've never yet heard one of the branches in my, of a tree in my yard at this time of year going, because Jesus didn't command them to bear fruit. He commanded them to abide in him. He says, if you'll abide in me, I'll bear the fruit through you. And so many of us and so many churches are trying to bear fruit, and that's not what we're called to do. The fruit we're bearing is a sign of our abiding in the vine. So if there's not very much spiritual fruit in your life, then you need to stop looking at the fruit end and look at the abiding end. Because you can only, he can only produce fruit through you. Now, you can produce a measure of fruit just by your own physical effort, but you'll run out. This is why Jesus says, and we looked at this a while ago, he says over in Matthew chapter 11, 28, he says, he says you know, all, all ye that are weary and heavy laden, come to me and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And so the whole point of this is this. You have a purpose. You are a branch. And God's purpose is for you to bear a particular fruit through you. And in the same way, the church is a branch, a collection of branches. We're a section of the tree. Jesus uses the example of a body also. Paul does. And so the church has a purpose. And we don't get to determine what that purpose is. So here at Faith Christian Center, we don't have a vision team. We have a vision team, but that's not sitting together saying, you know what, what would be a good five-year plan? What would be a good three-year plan? What would be good? Where do we need to be? And I'm not saying that's wrong to do. I'm just saying that's not how God built me. I believe the scriptural method is to find out from the potter what he's made us to be. Find out from the tree what fruit he intends to bear through us. So we can't determine that for ourselves. And as long as we're trying to determine that for ourselves, now it's one thing to determine what, he, what his purpose is. That's what we're supposed to do. But not for ourselves. This is, this is what I want to be. This is what I want this church to be. This is what I want my life to be. This is the goal of my life. Because once I became a Christian, I gave that right up. Paul says, I've been crucified with Christ. Ever wonder what that means? Paul didn't. He, did, he was eventually crucified. But he said that before he ever went to a cross. Paul said that when he's talking about I, me, mine. My rights, my will, my way. I don't want to do that. I want to do this. This is what I want to be. This is my ambition. This is my purpose. That, he said, I've crucified. So that I no longer live, but it's Christ who now lives in me. See, he's the branch. I'm the branch. He lives his life in me. And the life that I now live in this flesh... I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So what we're looking at this morning is that we need to go examine our personal lives. We need to examine as a church, why are we here? Are we just here so that we have a place to come on Sunday mornings and, 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 and learn and grow in the Lord and there's nothing wrong with that? That's a valid purpose, but is that the only purpose why we're here? Are we here because we like the music? Are we here because, you know, we like to see our friends? Those are all wonderful reasons for coming to church. But is that why we're here? We need to ask ourselves, why do I come to church? 
Sometimes we come out of habit, and that's a good habit to have. Try to instill that in my children, because when you don't feel like coming, the habit's what gets you up and gets you coming anyway. Are we here because our friends are here? Are we here because we like the music? Are we here because we like to hear the Word of God preached? Are we here because, for whatever reasons, and it can change from week to week. But the question is, are we here for the reason He's called us to be here? Does Faith Christian Center exist for His purposes or for our own individual purposes? A few years ago, it was kind of popular among pastors to ask, the word term was relevant, are we relevant? And what that really means is if we just folded up our doors next week, would anybody around notice that? Because if they didn't notice, that means we never had any impact on them. We weren't of any significance to them. But I've got a bigger question. If we just folded up our doors and just stopped existing, would God notice? Would the kingdom of God be impacted if we just shut our doors and closed down? That's to me of even greater relevance. What is our importance to him? He has an importance for us, but are we carrying out that importance? So having laid that background, let's look at what the Bible says. Let's go to, Matthew, to Mark chapter 16. And we'll just get started with this because we're going to spend a good part of this year looking at this. Mark chapter 16. I was praying in here last year about some things and laying these things before the Lord and I heard him say to me, go pull out the vision. So I went and pulled it out and read it. And he said, that's, that's what you're to do. That's not why you're here. And I said, Lord, well, then why are we here? And he told me to turn here. Jesus here is at the end of his ministry. He's been crucified. He's been raised from the dead. He's walked among the, his disciples and others for about 40, 40 days. And let's pick up here looking in um, verse 14. And later he appeared to the eleven, that's the remaining of his disciples, as they sat at a table, and he rebuked their unbelief and hardness of heart. My goodness, that's an incredible statement. <laughs> They have watched him crucified. I mean, they've watched him for three years, raise the dead, walk on water, speak to storms. They've seen the miraculous. They watched him crucified. They've seen him raised from the dead. They've seen him walk through walls, appear in places. He appeared to over 500 people, it says, in one place. They've seen him just appear and disappear. And still, they're struggling to believe. This is the 11, which tells me that believing is not based on seeing. Well, if I can see it, I'll believe it. They saw him raised from the dead, and they still struggled. Believing is not seeing. Believing is an attitude. It's a decision of the heart. It's a decision of the will. That's why God can hold us accountable for what we believe. Verse 15. 
And he said to them, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature, and he who believes and is baptized will be saved, and he who does not believe will be condemned. But these signs will follow those who believe. In my name they will cast out demons. They will speak with new tongues. They will take up serpents, and they will drink any deadly thing, and it will by no means harm them, hurt them. They will lay hands on the sick, and they will recover. And after then the Lord had spoken to them, he received up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of the Father. And they went out and preached everywhere, the Lord working with them and confirming the word through the accompanying signs. We want to see the miracles. We want to see the signs following. But those are simply a tool to fulfill why we're here. So what does he say we're here to do? We're here to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. And he who believes and is baptized will be saved. And he who does not believe will be condemned. The first word in this is go. You know, the simple words in the Bible are often the most profound and the ones, therefore, were so easy to miss. I looked up in Greek what the word go means. It means go. <laughs> it means do something. It's a verb. In fact, in the Greek, it is in the tense that's a commandment. It's an imperative tense. That's what it is which means do it. Don't think about it. Do it. Go into all the world. And we like to theorize. We like to plan. We like to strategize. And then wonder why we're not seeing the power and the miracles when they happen as we go. They happen as we go. I remember as a little boy trying to learn how to ride a bicycle. I remember doing it with our kids too, but I can vividly remember me. And my father took me out in the street where my grandparents had their place, and I had his bicycle with training wheels on it, you know, and I practiced with the training wheels. And, but training wheels, you can only work so far. At some point, you've got to take the training wheels off, and you've got to ride the bicycle. Because the thing about riding a bicycle is the key to riding the bicycle and not falling off is balance, right? But you can't learn balance in a classroom. Well, I can tell you what balance is. Balance is not leaning too far to the left or leaning too far to the right. If I lean too far to the right, then I've got to correct and lean too far to the left. Great, great principle, Pastor. What's too far? Ah. It depends on the circumstances. The only way you can learn how to balance a bicycle is to ride a bicycle. So my father took me out in his infinite wisdom one day and says, we're taking the training wheels off. (laughs) But I might fall. That's the only way you're going to learn, is to take a risk. He said, but what I'll do is I'll help you. I'll take hold of the back of the seat. And so he got a hold of the back of the seat, and we're walking down the street, and began to run a little bit, and I began to go a little faster, feeling this is good. But I felt secure because my father had a hold of the back of the seat. And I get down to the end, and I turn around, and I couldn't see my father. He was back at the beginning. What I didn't realize, he'd let go. That's another message, parents. He'd let go. And I discovered, because if I, he told me I was going to let, he was going to let go, I'd have got all nervous and probably fallen over. And so I, but the, my point is this. I wanted to practice balancing before I moved. I wanted to sit on there and practice balancing that bicycle before I would venture out, because balancing the bicycle sitting still 
There's very little risk. If I fall, I'm going to be able to catch myself. The only danger is when I go to move forward, but I learned the lesson that the only way to balance is by moving forward. So the balancing, the balancing that comes in, the, 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 comes in by, only happens as I venture out. And in the same way, the anointing, the grace, the presence of God only flows as it's needed, and it's only needed as we go. So the first commandment to the church is not to sit in church. The first commandment to the church is not to learn and to gather information. The first commandment to the church is to go. And when we go, we have a reason to learn what we're learning. When we go, coming to church has a purpose for us now other than I feel like it, I don't feel like it. That athlete eats not just because they like it. They know their body needs that fuel so that they can go and skate on that rink, so that they go and run that 100-yard dash. Then why we come to church begins to take on a new meaning. I'm going to get strengthened, to get encouraged, to get enlightened so that I can go and do what I've been put here to do. Let's pray. Father, as we come to you this morning, we hear your word speak to us and say go. And we confess to you, Father, that so much of the church, I can't speak for other churches, but so much of our lives here, we become a center for learning and for growing, but you've called us more than growing to go. And Father, you've called us to begin to wake up and realize where we are and what we need to do. And we don't know how to do it. But as we begin to step out and go, we trust you, Father, that you'll begin to give us direction. And so we pray this morning for Faith Christian Center. We pray this morning for each and every one of us that that word go will begin to be deposited in our hearts, in our minds, our thinking, and in our lives, that you've called us to go out into all the world. You've called us. The reason we're here is to go, not to sit. To go, not just to learn. To go into all the world. And we ask you for the power of the Holy Spirit to do that in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen and amen.